Today we are going to continue with our third week in this Struggle is Real sermon series, uh, tackling those topics from the pulpit which may uh, hit home for us in one way or another, maybe as being particularly troublesome. Two weeks ago we talked about worrying. Last week the topic was hurrying, and now this morning I'd like to address a potentially more difficult subject, uh, grieving. My questions for the morning are these. How can the church help support those who are grieving? And what does the Bible say about how Christians who believe in a God who has literally conquered death, how may we be present for those struggling with loss? Just a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, I'm no licensed therapist. I'm no psychiatrist. So I'll be using a variety of biblical texts this morning for my message. And beyond that, uh, we, do, we don't have the tools here uh, to really provide information, uh, perhaps the way it may be needed. So just keep that in mind. We're going to be coming from a spiritual perspective here this morning as we address this topic of grieving. Uh, would you pray with me before we continue with our time in the Word? Oh, Lord. You know our hearts here this morning. You know the baggage, the hurts, the hang-ups of each one of us. Lord, I pray at this time that no matter what is going on in our lives individually, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would be here for us. I pray that each one of us would very much experience you in real time today as a God who cares, as a God who loves, and as a God who has been there. Lord, I pray that my words would be honoring to you. I pray they would uh, give that scope of your word when it comes to these issues in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen. Well, I came across uh, an article this week entitled, Why We Fail the Grieving, written by one Philip Kenyon at Christianity Today. I thought it was interesting. Uh, as someone who has experienced significant loss uh, in the deaths of a brother and father at a young age, I found Mr. Kenyon's words appropriate, uh, maybe even right on target at times. He writes, Consider how two churches responded to deaths within their respective congregations. The first story is mine, he writes. It was more than 30 years ago when my father died of cancer. I remember standing in the narthex of the church building looking at my friends. They were talking among themselves and every now and then and would glance quickly in my direction. They knew my father had died, but they did not once approach me. He continues, I think they wanted to do something to extend support or comfort, but that they did not know what to say or do. So they did nothing. They made me feel like I had a contagious disease. I'll call it grief pox. No one ever sent a card or expressed any tangible support through my bereavement, I felt as though I was left to navigate the waters of grief by myself. Mr. Kenyon then continues with the following. The second story belongs to a friend whose husband died of cancer over a year ago. 
On the anniversary of his death, the church sent her a card of support and remembrance. She responded to the church with a note that in part said, I thought everyone had forgotten. A simple card ministered to my friend. It demonstrated to her that the church had not forgotten the death of her husband. Mr. Kenyon then goes on to note the sad reality in the church for too many of our bereaved. That is, quote, many churches do not have a plan on how to support those who have suffered a loss. This is not done intentionally. The article goes on to note possibly three reasons why the church may be failing its grieving. I've noted them here. Uh, the first, feelings of awkwardness. The second, discomfort with our own mortality. And third, unrealistic expectations. I'm going to speak more about these issues in just a little while, maybe give us some ways to confront them. But first, let's, let's talk about why these failings, if they exist, are just symptoms of a greater issue within the church. Well, it seems we struggle with our bereaved. Maybe it's because we fail to reconcile what we know about God with our grief. What we know about God with our grief. That is too often the question within the church for us at a time of loss is not, how can God help me during this struggle? Rather, we may be tempted to ask, how could God allow me to grieve in the first place? One ministry team blogs it this way. Where was God when my 19-year-old son died from severe bleeding and broken bones after he slammed his truck into a tree? I think God went on vacation that summer morning and left no miracles behind, at least not for me. Against my will, my soul was deposited on the grief trail, a journey no parent should ever have to experience, but many of us do. They continue, I used to have high hopes. No matter how bad things got, there was always God's life preserve to bring in that miracle. That after my son died, hope dwindled to getting by. God was clearly absent, checked out, and I felt utterly on my own. Folks, I can tell you from my experience as part of a church-going family in the aftershock of death, the easiest solution for the bereaved is often to put God's participation in one's life on the back burner altogether. That's often an easy way to go about things. I'm not saying this idea is the most hopeful or biblical option. But in a time of unavoidable numbness, desperation, and isolation, it's often all one can do to pick up some physical pieces of your life, make the best of it, and move forward with or without one's church friends. The church can't help bring back my loved one. We might think they can't relate to what I'm going through. If the struggle is grieving, ironically, the church should be the very first place one goes for help. That should be our first resort, not our last. 
But often there are alternatives. There are outlets like the liquor store, the bar, social clubs, places our culture has deemed appropriate when we're distraught, offering temporary fixes of immediate, typically sinful gratification that don't really help anything. We may try to numb or run from grief or just ignore grief, but it won't help us cope with grief. It's still there when we're sober again, unfortunately. And what we forget is that God doesn't ever turn up missing in this struggle. That's what we miss. He hasn't dodged our grief. In fact, the Bible reveals to us a God who is well acquainted with grief, down to each Trinity member. And what the scriptures tell us about divine grief may not only uh, help us prepare for the grief experienced in and out of our church family, we may also better understand the issue of grief from the perspective of eternity. You know, the biggest indicator in scripture that we have a God who grieves comes just a few chapters into Genesis. It's very powerful. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, God the Father is grieved. He's grieved because of the sinfulness that has overtaken his people, overtaken humanity. Jesus, the Son of God, expresses grief himself for the same reason, the sin and stubbornness of God's people. This is in Matthew chapter 23. And long before the incarnation, long before Jesus came to be born among us, the prophet Isaiah, do you remember, would speak of our Lord in chapter 53 as what? A man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Isaiah 63.10 mentions how mankind has, quote, rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. It goes on in himself, fought against them. We have a God of grief. Back to the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul reminds the church that we must not, quote, grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We must not grieve his spirit by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. And so if it ever seems impossible to us, and it may at times, if we cannot understand why a good God would allow his people to grieve, because it's a pretty good argument, we think, we need to remember that God himself knows grief quite well. For thousands of years, God has been grieving for us. He's been grieving for us. One commentator notes that the Hebrew word for grieve is found in Genesis chapter 6. This indicates a mixture of divine anger against sin and a heartfelt anguish concerning God's creation. In God's grief, in the chapter 6 uh, circumstance from Genesis, God wipes from the face of the earth, the human race, remember, in his grief, carrying out his judgment against sin. However, in God's grief, the other part to that, he also extends his grace and mercy on Noah and his family and saves them. Verses 7 and 8. In God's grief. 
This issue of physical death, which you and I know as the source of so much of our grief, this separation we experience from one another, it isn't actually our main problem. It's not the main problem. The main problem for you and for me is ultimately not what may grieve us, but what grieves God. What grieves God, which is our sin, our sin and our disobedience. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. Friends, we were never meant to have the struggle of grief over death. That was not intended for us. That was not part of God's plan for us. But in his grief, God allowed it to come into the world because of sin. As we know, there's a process in manufacturing in which a second product is made as well, called a byproduct right? As a byproduct of processed sugar, we have molasses. I'd like to thank Karen for finding this uh, really cool picture up here. As a byproduct of processed sugar, we have molasses. As a byproduct of wheat milling, we have wheat germ. Citrus fruit being processed into juice <clears throat> has given us orange and lemon oil, right? Byproducts. We might also say that death is the single most destructive and grief-causing byproduct mankind has ever managed to discover. But as much pain as death causes us, it's secondary to sin. It's secondary to sin. And so this is why Christians, of all people, <clears throat> this is why we should be able to sympathize with each other and to the outside world when it comes to grieving. <clears throat> it's amazing to note, we have a God who makes, and as the Bible says, remembers his covenants out of his great love to show us mercy. Psalm 106, verse 46, out of his grief. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary took care of the sin problem for us, so that we needn't bear the eternal weight of sin's byproduct eternally, which is death. So as we're grieving for the separation we know from others in this life, we can be assured God grieves for the separation He knows from others in this life as well. <clears throat> there used to be this expression we, you might hear from Charlie Brown of Peanuts, Good grief! Good grief, Charlie Brown. This is good grief. I always wondered what that was when I was a kid. Maybe on to something here. Can you imagine the infinite grief God has for billions of people who will never be able to be part of his adopted family? That's good grief, Charlie Brown. In his grief, he's been reaching out to us since we fell away from him in the garden. One prominent OT example of this grief is 
God pouring out for the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. They were deliberately choosing a spiritual death apart from God. But the Bible says when they would turn from their evil ways, Jonah chapter 3, what happened? God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And this is how our great God works. When we respond to him in obedience, we get to the root of grief, divine grief. We actually make a choice to get beyond that sick, isolated emptiness we feel when a loved one passes, but to a divine level. How can we begin to better understand how Christians can grieve? This is my whole point with this. Not just because of loss, but because our maker knows all about it. God knows grief. He's made us in his image. But in God's grief, God what? He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? John three sixteen. Do you ever feel like you just, uh, this might be an odd question this morning, but do you ever feel like you just want a good cry? Or am I just, just kind of weird? Maybe don't answer that part. But maybe some of you know what I, what I mean by that. If you've maybe endured a time of loss in your life, if you have before, maybe there's an object or a location. Maybe there's a film or a song or a special memory in your mind. It relates to a certain individual that you've lost. Maybe you'll revisit that, whatever it is, from time to time. There's some comfort there for you. There's some comfort there for you to go get that object with sentimental value. Or maybe you'll take a drive to that special location. Maybe you'll watch that movie or you'll listen to that song. You'll remember that conversation connected to that individual, that person that you're missing. You tell yourself, maybe even share with others, you go back there in, their, in your mind, you, you just want a good cry. And sometimes it's true. You know, our sinus passages do feel relief after we get a bit leaky, don't they? That's the best part about crying. Whew, cleared my head out a little bit. But sometimes you intentionally go there in your mind. You go there on purpose with that individual or with that scenario attached to that individual because you know it's a way that you're able to kind of bring them back, to visit them for just a little while. While you aren't physically able to bring that loved one back from the grave, you can bring them back in your imagination. And sometimes every now and again, just having the power to do that is good enough. Speaking from my own experience with death and loss, one of the most frightening emotions I remember, I was young, of course, but after losing my brother and father within a year, was this feeling of, of being completely powerless about my situation. Probably didn't help much that I was 11 years old, 10 years old in there. But this feeling of being completely powerless, maybe that emotion's a, a bit more universal in the struggle with grief. But here's what I figured out. God has given me the reins in a time of loss and afterwards to experience those individuals in my own mind. And sometimes it's just nice to go there. Again, I'm no psychiatrist, but sometimes it's nice to just have a good cry. But here's where I'm going with this. Uh, shortly after the passing of uh, my eldest brother, his name was John Rude. Uh, he was killed in June of 1989. 
My father, Jim, uh, he was an ordained minister at the time. He was serving as a church elder. My dad preached a topical sermon on the subject of death and grieving. The title of the message was Intensive Training. I have uh, three cassette copies which have survived the years, and I've even made a digital transfer of this sermon as well. And once every now and again, maybe every couple of years, I'll pull that thing out and I'll play it just because I want a good cry. But you know, to this day, what part of that message still grabs me the most, the part that makes me think, maybe not so much as, as a minister who I'm in the back of my mind thinking I'm supposed to be able to handle these emotions uh, so I can be there for others all the time, but just as a Christ follower, you know what reminds me that the grief I and those around me experience, that uh, everything's going to be okay in the end, I can, I can hang on to hope, that eventually things are going to truly work out just fine. My daddy, who just buried my brother after train hit his car, killed him on impact, says in a deeply moved, troubled, and shaky voice from the pulpit, do you know the shortest verse in the Bible? Which if you're using the King James Version, which everybody did back then, it was mandatory. No. The answer is John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Because if we don't believe our great God goes there along with us, his word says he's not only been grieving thousands of years longer in spirit, but sometimes in the flesh right beside us too. How about that? You remember in John chapter 11 when Mary comes to Jesus in verse 32 and the tears are flowing and the confusion is showing and Lazarus is now dearly departed. And Mary says something we all want to say to Jesus, if you've been there. Mary says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The text continues in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, struggle for Mary was grieving, and Jesus, the man, was literally grieving beside her. Remember? Now consider, just for a moment, this part that blows my mind. Jesus already knows what he's going to do in just a few moments. The dearly departed Lazarus is not going to be dearly departed for long. He's not going to be apart for very much longer. Earlier in John chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus has already told his disciples, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Then, in verses 23 and 25, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. He goes on, I, what? I am the resurrection and the life? So Jesus is purposely using this situation with Lazarus not to cause grief, but to pass on the message that everything's going to be okay. 
Again, in this life, we grieve for those we know who die. From the standpoint of eternity, God grieves for those who die without knowing him. This is death in sin and separation from God. But Jesus is going to defeat death for Lazarus in verse 43. And Jesus, get this, then he's going to defeat sin and separation from God on the cross for everyone. John 12, verse 32. What's causing all the grief in the universe for everyone, Jesus is going to make right again. This won't just be a going back in the mind with Lazarus. This won't just be I remember something and I can uh, bring them back in my mind for a little bit. Jesus is actually going to resurrect him. Bring him back from the dead. But first, Jesus is going to grieve with those who are grieving, isn't he? Jesus is going to grieve with those who are grieving. And so Jesus wept. The Bible says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible to me speaks volumes. We might struggle with going there with our grief, but Jesus went there. And what if Jesus went there? Must mean it's okay for me to go there too. It's okay for us to go there too and to be there with others in their grief and to share this with others even though we know what Jesus is going to do shortly. It's easy to be like those skeptics in John 11, verse 37. Could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I can ask that question too. I have asked that question. Where were you, Lord? Where was he when I needed him in my grief? But the Bible says Jesus was right there with me grieving. Well, why didn't he do something about it? Why couldn't he stop the train from smashing into my brother's vehicle? Why couldn't he stop the progression of the cancer that took my father's life? Why doesn't he do something about the children in the fourth world countries who are starving to death? Why doesn't he prevent hurricanes or a number of other catastrophic events across the planet? Where are you, God? Why doesn't God do something about the grief we suffer every day? I can ask these questions. But when I look at Jesus in John 11, I understand. Knowing the answers, having the why behind my suffering, behind all the grieving brothers and sisters, when I look at Jesus... It wouldn't change the fact that I grieve. It's not going to change that, even if I had the answer. My dad once preached, knowledge is passive intellectual, but suffering is active, personal. Intellectual answers will not solve suffering. He continued, suppose that God did give me the why. With my finite mind, I would not be able, I would not be capable of understanding the answer because his answer would have to include the light of all eternity. God may not always tell me the why, but God will always share with me the what. He is right there beside me through it and in it. We see that in his word. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. This might pertain to temptation. It works with grief too. He sympathizes with us in our grief. We see it in his word. 
Even moments before Jesus knew he was ultimately going to conquer that which grieved his father, which ultimately grieves us all, the sin problem, the death problem, just before going to the cross. Matthew 26, 38 records Jesus saying what? What did Jesus say? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now he's about ready to defeat death, to conquer it. We heard these words to say, today we might say, call the suicide hotline. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at that place where grief has numbed you to the point where you're so overwhelmed your senses aren't even working the way they should when someone has passed away? Country singer Johnny Cash's surprise last hit before his passing was a song entitled Hurt. Maybe some of you have heard this song. It was a surprise to many because, in part because it was a cover of a song by 1990s electronic metal group Nine Inch Nails. They don't get referenced in a whole lot of sermons, probably. <laughs> the first line of the song surely portrayed Cash's own grief after the, uh, the death of his wife, June Carter, as Cash growled, I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I'm not sure there's much difference between the yearning for God in this lyric and the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 38. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Maybe grief is necessary for us in this world. We don't like it, but we bear it. This is God of which we speak. This is Christ whom we follow in the garden. Sure, Jesus certainly would have preferred not to have gone to the cross. But in the grieving of Christ from Lazarus to Gethsemane, he gave up his will. We see a selflessness. Jesus grieved for us and with us, and he was obedient to his Father's calling in his grief. Amen? Perhaps we, we can't fully understand, at least not right now. Maybe someday, maybe in eternity we will. But perhaps today we can't ever fully understand the struggle of grieving in this life. But we can trust that Jesus grieves with us. That's what I want you to take this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Today, no matter how grief may have touched your life, the struggle is real, but you've never carried it alone. God grieved for us. He grieved for us at the beginning of our story in Genesis. He grieved with us in the middle of his redemption story for us in the Gospels and praise his name. The day will come when God himself will take away our grief forever and ever. Amen? The day will come, the day in which sin is fully conquered, the day in which death will finally be defeated at the end of all things. Our text will come from Revelation 21.4. I saved it till the end of our time together this morning just to be ornery. <laughs> Read it with me. Revelation 21.4. A promise from the one who has been grieving with us for thousands of years. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. Right now, I know we may want to ask questions like, how will I not be grieving for my loved ones who passed away without knowing the Lord? We may say, how in heaven could I ever be at peace thinking I know people in hell? But just as Jesus has promised in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God is going to minister himself to you. To all those who previously suffered. That's a promise. He's going to wipe away every tear. Every tear forever. Somehow, all the pain, all the suffering, all the grief every Christian has suffered will be wiped away on that very last day. The Bible promises this to us, and this is quite a promise. Uh, The Greek word in the text from Revelation, which we translate wipe away as in our tears. This word is also used of blotting out names from the book of life in Revelation 3. We're kind of talking about the same thing. Just as human grief will no longer be shared among Christians, divine grief will be blotted out as well. And this is a wonderful promise for believers, but it's a harsh reality check for those who are not believers. For their being wiped away or blotted out means to be cast into outer darkness, according to Matthew chapter 8. So if we followers of Christ, if we share any grief at all about the lost, if we can share that divine grief, we better take the time while we have the time to make sure that these folks are not grieving their own spiritual death someday because this means hell. And you don't want your worst enemies going there. Temporary human grief for those who pass in Jesus. I assure you, it's going to mean very little compared to an eternity apart from the one who made you to be his forever. You don't want that. Not at all. But let's back up a bit. Because I think it's so important this morning that we understand that if Jesus also didn't shy away from ministering to those grieving physical death while he was here, Perhaps the church shouldn't shy away from bereavement support also. Perhaps this should be a priority for us. But the question is how? Well, let's discuss it briefly. Let's again talk about um, these possible reasons, three potential ways the church may fail its grieving, feelings of awkwardness, discomfort with our own mortality, and unrealistic expectations. Maybe this is a place to start anyway. Sure, we feel awkward knowing what to say when we're with someone who's grieving, don't we? Feelings of awkwardness. As one author notes, one's desire to be useful and to ease the pain of loss is common among clergy and friends of the bereaved. We want to do something. We want to say something. We want to be useful. Somehow we want God to use us, make everything right for this person. This author notes, consider Job's friends were doing the right thing when they just sat in silence with Job. But... It was when they started to share their insights and platitudes that they failed him as a friend. That's so very true. The White Rabbit told Alice in the 1951 Walt Disney animated version of Alice in Wonderland, don't just do something, stand there. And perhaps we could take this advice to heart. A friend of mine who recently lost their spouse shared, it's important to really think about what you say to someone who just lost someone. I don't know how you get out of bed or I can't imagine what you're going through are surprisingly terrible. As the church, instead of being surprisingly terrible, why don't we, like Jesus, just be present? Don't just say something, stand there. 
Just be there. Keep the present time in perspective. And by the way, the second issue, discomfort with our own mortality. You know, this means that it's okay for Christians to admit that death is part of an earthly life, but it's not the end of our existence. The Bible says, don't ever allow yourself to grieve as the world grieves, as though we were without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Let's be honest with ourselves on this one. And, and what's more, be honest with the Lord. How comfortable are you really with the idea that life is temporary? I don't know how comfortable I am with that. I don't like that very much. I'm kind of comfortable on this planet. I keep my toothbrush here. <laughs> Woody Allen once said, I'm not uncomfortable about death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. One author notes, my time serving as a chaplain in hospice and as a bereavement coordinator forced me to come to terms with the inevitability of my own death. And friends, if we're not honest with ourselves, that as much of a blessing as this life from the Lord may be, it's only a matter of time before physical death. How can we ever prepare ourselves or others for what's coming if we're not honest with ourselves about this? Yes, the Lord promises us in our text today, and we need to cling to this text that death shall be no more. But in the meantime, it's still Hebrews 9.27, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So let's be realistic for our own good and the good of others. And finally, unrealistic expectations about the bereaved. This may truly fail us all, so I, I think uh, we mean well. I think our hearts are often in the good place and... Uh, Preachers are not immune from this. Uh, some people seem to think that uh, putting Romans 8.28 on repeat or God works all things together for good, that uh, reciting this over and over is going to take away a person's grief, but this is not going to be the case. We can offer counseling sessions. We can offer popular books on the subject of death and dying and consult textbooks for models and stages of grief. And we can refer people to therapists and uh, we can truly desire to believe God is working all of these things together for good. But may we not forget that our Lord himself has been dealing with grief for a very, very long time. There's no magic time period in which grief goes away for any of us. It's been shared with me, the grief journey is different for everyone. No two people grieve the same. What might be helpful for some people may not be helpful for others. This person says, I don't know what might affect me and cause me to break into tears, and if I don't know, no one else can know either. Unpredictability is a big part of grief. But friends, while I believe we are limited in shouldering the struggle of grieving for Others, I also believe this. As a child of God who grew up a child bereaved in the church, we are still obligated to show the love of Jesus by helping carry that cross. Amen? We're still obligated. The cross Jesus himself bore, he bore out of his grief for us, out of divine grief. The struggle is grieving. The struggle is real so is the God who will take it away one day. Let's pray.
Lord, this morning, we come to you as your people. We come to you knowing that each one of us, Lord, has likely experienced grief in some way. Parents and and children and friends and uh, people we know. Lord, in this life, sometimes we can struggle. Lord, I just pray that that everyone here this morning, no matter where we may be, if we're struggling with grief right now, if, if if we have been recently, no matter where we are, Lord, in this life, I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would speak to us, would help us remember, Lord, you have a divine love for us. You have a divine grief for us. And Lord, you've promised that you have not and will not leave us as orphans. We may lose a father, a brother, a mother, a friend, Lord, you haven't gone anywhere. And you will not. Help us to remember, Lord, every day. No matter what we're going through, or no matter who may be near us going through loss, we can pass this example on. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage that hope would be something that flows out of us because we know you. God, in our time of loss, comfort us. Wrap your arms around us. Help us remember whose family we belong to. We're not alone in this world. In fact, this world's not our home. You just have us on a mission here for a little while longer. Lord, we know one day there's going to be a fantastic reunion. The reunion of your family. And it's going to go on forever. And no one's ever going to leave. Lord, help us to want to further this, this message of joy and unity on to others. Lord, we know that that you have desired that we would be one as you are one. Help us, Lord, to remember that our work here is not done in bringing others home. You don't desire that anyone would die the spiritual death, but that all would come to repentance in you and know you and come home to you. Help us, Lord, to reach out and share your grief with the world that's going to hell. We love you, Lord. We desire to follow you there to our eternal home where we'll be together forever. In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen. The struggle is grieving and the struggle is real. So is our God. 
so is our God, and there's nothing that you can experience, no emotion you can have, no frustration or hardship that, that can touch you that he hasn't already had. You can't ever say, God, you don't know what it's like, because he has. He knows what it's like, and he shares that emotion with you. It's amazing when we look at his word and we see that love that he has for us. And so today, we're going to extend an invitation to you as we go on into our uh, invitation song, You Never Let Go. Remember that we are promised. We are promised an inheritance far greater than anything on this earth because it involves us as family, children of God. What a homecoming it's going to be. Can you, can you just imagine the way it'll be? Uh, went out here to this combined service at Rock Lake. You know, we had multiple congregations there. You get to catch up with multiple people uh, from different churches, and you say, boy, this is just a little taste of heaven, getting to talk to so-and-so from different churches. This is just a small, just a little bit of a taste of eternity, of the way it will be one day on that reunion day. What a day it will be when Jesus returns. Amen? What a day is in store for us who know Jesus. Remember that day. Keep your eyes on Jesus and on that day. And if you have a decision to make this morning, if you haven't yet gone down into those waters of baptism to await for that day, to become a child of God, an immersed new creation, we invite you to do so as we stand and sing, you never let go to God who never lets go of us. Would you stand?